Hey, this is Andy Lebasugu. Welcome to the first episode of the Secret Source podcast. Now, this is where we open source the secret source. We do this by distilling live entrenched experiences and insights gleaned from ecosystem entrepreneurs, innovators, and area experts, all of whom are actively figuring out what it takes to succeed in Africa's tech startup ecosystem. Now, with that said, please help me welcome our guest on the show, one of three, Nicole Dunn, who recently transitioned from being venture scale lead at Founders Factory Africa to becoming COO at a fintech startup called Revio. How's it going? It definitely looks easier for the outside. <laughs> <laughs> Look, no, we're in a we're in a really great position. We're in the process of closing out a fundraising round with some A-class investors at some really fair terms, which is great considering the market. We've got a really great founding team, some great clients in the pipeline. And so while it feels a bit like everything's on fire, it's a good fire. Good, good. <laughs> so glad to hear that. Listen, we also have on today's show, Taris Arnold, who stepped out of his partnerships management role at Founders Factory Africa to pursue the wonderful world of cryptocurrency, Web3, all of these buzz phrases, the blockchain, all of these interesting things. He is business development lead at Luno, South African startup we all know and many of us bank with and <laughs> maybe love. Welcome to you, Taris. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks, Andile. Fantastic. Fantastic. Listen, last but not least, please uh, welcome to the show Victor Chaitezri. He's a former VC who is now the CEO and founder of a road freight and logistics startup Triplo, which is uh, is definitely uh, one of our prides and joy um, at Founders Factory Africa because we've had a front row seat to watching him build it out and um, we've had the privilege of supporting him do it. Welcome to the show, Victor. How are you doing, man? Good. Thanks, Andy. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So uh, looking forward to having some fun. Fantastic. Listen, before we get uh, into like diving into your experiences and and uh, what you're learning from both your successes and maybe setbacks and challenges. Um, let's warm things up by, you know, dropping some interesting facts about each of you and then having you respond to some questions I have about some of those interests. I'm going to start with Nicole. Nicole, um, you are formerly a world champion debater. You are also a flautist, which is a flute player. I want to know which one of those things have taught you more about what it takes to run a successful startup. Music or debate? That's a really interesting question. I would say debating because it has one interesting parallel, which is that when you debate, people think it makes you more argumentative and maybe more stubborn in your points of view. But what actually ends up happening is you learn how to see things from both sides because you often have to make arguments that you don't agree with. Right. And in startups, you really have to be committed to the problem that you're solving, but you have to loosely hold on to the solutions and the ways that you get there. Mm. And so being able to have that core conviction, but then loosely hold on to the way to get to that outcome is a really great parallel I would draw. Really interesting because you're right, because classical music especially is very prescriptive, very yes. specific. Yes. Right. And and so there's really nothing to argue about. And it's the music, you play it. There might be a question of interpretation, but the music's the music. Mm -hmm. Whereas debate, you you do kind of have to be flexible. Really, see, this is why I knew these questions would be dope. <laughs> Victor, you're up next. Uh, a lot of people listening to the show right now probably wouldn't know that you you've played cricket professionally. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, where did you play, and and what did you play? Were you a bowler, batsman? Were you like a wiki? What was the story? I played quite a bit of uh, international age groups cricket. I represented Zimbabwe under 14 through to captaining under 19 um, across the board. And I also played Zimbabwe hockey. Wow. Uh, field and See, indoor. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So, so really, I think a lot of even my uh, business grounding was actually built from sport. You know, it teaches you a lot strategy, teaches you perseverance. It actually teaches you to lose, um, which is a daily thing when you are running a startup, right? You lose some battles and you win some. What is it about playing sport at the highest level at that age group that didn't prepare you for life as an entrepreneur? Jeez, that's a big twist to the question. Um, so look, I, I, I think um, I think managing people, 
sports, yes, captain teams, you all on the same page and everything else. But in a business like ours where you're managing knowledge workers, um, it's very, very difficult, you know, to actually manage people. I thought I knew how to manage people until I started Triplo. So um, I think that element, uh, I should have learned a little bit more from sports. <laughs> That's interesting because you're right. Uh, again, uh, you know, reflecting on your answer, you know, you're a, you're a captain, but you're all there for the same thing. You, you want your, your team to be working effectively. So you effectively like make more runs than the other team <laughs> and win the game. It's not always as, as clear cut for a team of people you amass to, to grow a startup. Everyone has the idea often of what you should be prioritizing as a leader, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Especially when you start managing the board as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> Shots fired. Uh, we, we love you. We love you board. We sit on his board, by the way. So I, I hope you're not subtweeting us. <laughs> okay. All right. So Taris, Taris, you have this love and interest in sustainable smart homes. Yes. Okay. What do you think, as an analogy for the smart home, startups embody at their best and maybe not? I think probably the closest analogy, I think like when you're like trying to build smart homes, looking into it, like there is always a fancier, cooler, more expensive ways to get things done. Uh, and often, Often there's a much simpler, more manual, cheaper way to actually still achieve the same outcome. And I think that's really similar with startups. I think uh, sometimes we'll see founders and, and people that work in tech looking for the coolest way to automate it and, and want to throw in AI and machine learning and uh, often doing it manually and just getting it to, to, to work first time. Some water, some 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 sand and, and concrete, make some bricks, build your house. Yeah, exactly. Like there's, there's, <laughs> One brick at a time. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's no need to overcomplicate things. And, and usually that's will be the downfall if you're trying. But then it's also true that there's ways to build some of us have never imagined or you know thought to think about when, I mean, we have most of us in this room, our Apple devices in front of us. And let's be honest, uh, an Apple-led world wasn't something I envisaged in 1990 when we were getting our first television uh, in Zimbabwe <laughs> as a family. So yeah, I suppose that's it's also true that some visionaries in the world of startups are onto something that maybe the rest of us don't find as intuitive. No, I definitely. I think I think when it comes to like things like smart homes and having little devices that allow you to control your lights and your coffee and, and all of these things were, were things that were played with in sci-fi in the 50s and kind of imagined as this beautiful world that I would get to. And I think often with startup founders, they are looking at stuff that most people don't believe is possible. They don't believe that it, it makes sense to even try and go down that path. Uh, but they're brave enough to give it a try, give it a go. Sometimes it doesn't work out, but when it does, it can it can be really game changing. Okay, I like it. I like it. Let's dive into the meter things. We're gonna pass around the proverbial ball of yarn and see what connections form between the four of us as we have those conversations. So I'll start that way by going: Where were you when Triplo first joined? Founders Factory Africa's uh, portfolio terrace, because that's an interesting story, right? Just to kind of position where you were as part of the team and maybe l lean into all the reasons you've seen fit to leave. Yeah, Triplo has always had a very special place in my heart because it was the first time I met Victor and heard about Triplo was my first day at FFA and I was lucky enough to uh, actually go to their investment committee where, where Triplo was kind of approved as a concept for, for us to kind of stop building and working on. Uh, and it was really, I think it does, it's testimony to the exciting place that FFA can be. I came into FFA from working at a startup previously, uh, even though I had that kind of tech background, I had no idea what to expect moving into the investment, the VC space, really what role I would play. And this was in the really early stages of FFA and there was probably about 10 of us. Uh, and getting to go to that investment committee to really understand the questions that were being posed, the challenges, as someone kind of junior, right? To someone, yeah, I was, I was, I was the most junior person at FFA. Uh, I was probably a level above an intern, uh, and I was just, I went there and I was really, I was very nervous because I was meeting the, all the big bosses and everything. But uh, I think that was what was really special is that I realized that even though there's people have a lot of these titles and there's a lot of pressure in these types of situations, everyone's really normal. Yeah. I do to Victor's point about cricket. I remember in the elevator up, that's how. 
I found out that Victor played uh, for Zimbabwe because Darren, one of the Standard Bank team members, who uh, one of their FFA investors, was kind of grilling him on uh, trying to join their, their cricket team. Um, so yeah, it was it was really exciting, and I think probably one of the biggest takeaways I got from there was. I think a lot of people anticipate with like seed stage startups that maybe everything's been worked out, everything's perfect, everything's bold. There's a, a super clear roadmap, a lot of detail. But Victor really just he had a vision, he understood his problem, he had a, a clear idea of kind of how to get there. Um, but he needed kind of backing and support to help fill in those gaps. So let's imagine you throwing that ball of yarn over to to Victor. Do you remember that day? When you pitched, and in fact, let me not ask you about that day because we've heard quite a colorful, you know, uh, you know, telling of what that kind of felt like. I think there was at least one billionaire in that room when he's pitching. Probably, probably <laughs> at least one, like legit, like dollar, dollar or pound billionaire. Yeah. Um, name drop uh, alert. Uh, <laughs> no, but for real. Um, leading up to that moment, you you've previously been a VC, worked for companies like Microsoft. You had a really cushy corporate career. You ditched that to to start a logistics business, you know, long haulage, trucking, some of the hardest kind of logistics to do. And then you sort of figure out that tech can enable efficiencies in that business. And it leads you to founding a tech business to help other founders like yourself. This is just, am I getting that right? And so, I mean, that leads you into this scenario that Taris just broke down. I've oversimplified a lot. What would you color in? It was um, quite an interesting path, you know, so uh, it was in corporate, very comfortable, uh, worked for some really amazing companies, but, you know, the entrepreneurial bug kept hitting me, right? So left corporate, many people thought I was mad um, because you're leaving a cushiony job with amazing pay and, and everything else to basically be unemployed, Right. So, <laughs> so, um, and even uh, I know at that point, my wife was not too happy with that decision. Um, but at least now, you know, she can see the, the reality of what the opportunities uh, entrepreneurship can bring. So I remember at the beginning when I, I bought trucks um, with the help of, you know, friends, family to build the trucking business faced a lot of problems. I mean, I had to be on the ground. So here's a guy, imagine now coming home with two, guy with two masters coming home smelling of real oil. You know, that kind of oil where you have to sleep outside. Otherwise, it stanches your whole house, right? So, so it was quite difficult at the beginning. But um, I went into it really to look at it more from an ecosystem perspective, to understand the logistics ecosystem, understand where the problems really lie, because um, there were, I'd seen them in corporate, but I didn't know what they were like. And then based on all those problems, then eventually built over 100 Excel sheets just to solve for my own problems. And there's, it may be, you know, a lot of other smaller transporters or trucking companies were facing exactly the same problems. The manual inefficiencies are too big. I mean, this is a global issue. You would think even some of the larger corporates have very automated systems, but they actually don't. You know, they're still doing things very manually. So now imagine a small company that can't even buy, you know, software licensing. So you can imagine the amount of manual stuff happening there. But what was happening as well is I had to piece together more than 20 different solutions, you know, to try to solve for my own problems. And that's when we tested with other guys. They realized that there was a need. Their own operations were improving based off of these Excel sheets. And that's when I approached Bongani to say, hey, can we co-found this thing together? And then he said, no, he's getting into something new, big. Uh, that's amazing that he doesn't want to, you know, let go of the opportunity. And and that's where we I came in. The first meeting, it was too amazing. I still remember everything about that meeting. I started off with one person in the meeting. At the end of it, there were about 12 people in the same room. So this is just, just hang on a minute. So Bong says to you, I can't co-found this idea you have of, of bringing order to these spreadsheets and turning this into some tech product that can, you know, help people at scale. Correct. What I can do is introduce you to this new idea that I'm about to plug into. I've just sold my business. Correct. Um, in order to throw my lot in with this crazy new co-founding team that are starting this new thing called Founders Factory Africa. And your idea sounds 
like something I should be putting onto the team over there to talk to you about to see if we can do something. Is that correct? Correct. He didn't give me that much detail. Oh, he yeah. Say, <laughs> That's the story he yeah. gives us. He's like, this is what he, so he just, he just said, come meet some people. Correct. So he said, your life will change. Just come and meet wow. these guys. So I remember I went up to the 12th floor in, um, at Rennie House, uh, where Founders Factory used to be. In We're not the 14th. At the 14th floor. And I remember I started off the meeting with two people, um, uh, Bongani and uh, Sam, the chief uh, venture architect. And then I remember now many people kept getting called in. And what was now scary is that there's sticky notes flying around. I don't know what's, what's being written in these sticky notes. And then people are having side conversations in, and here I was presenting. You know, it's that time when you feel like, uh, is this a time when I actually leave with my dignity or not? Um, the was quite amazing is, you know, we ended up at the end of that session realizing that there's some work to be done. Let's work hard and put this in front of the investment committee. How many months between that and the, the day Taris spoke about? So Taris is meeting you for the first time at the investment committee, I see, where you pitched successfully, yeah. um, made a case for basically, hey, we've got a venture that that's worth building out. Yeah. I'm up for being its founding CEO. How many months between that story you just told and the one Taris told earlier? Yes, I think it was within a three-month period. What? Yeah, so we, I remember we had the first chat end of February into March, and the concept was approved end of May. But what was amazing is that, you know, which is which is why I'm a big fan and a big supporter of Founders Factory um, and Standard Bank because it was a proper tutorial. Um, it wasn't a case where I went in and presented the idea and it was a case of, no, it's not going to happen. Uh, and what was also quite cool is that the idea presented uh, three months before and what was approved with two slightly different things. Yeah, there was an evolution? Is, correct, correct. And the evolution happened with everyone's input. It was a case where, you know, how do we prove and disprove hypotheses? And we kept working towards that, uh, towards the investment committee. So that was quite amazing as part of the story. So, Nicole, you're listening to this going, oh, my word. I want you to think about your first day, the first time you were exposed to a version of what Victor just unpacked. Right. You're coming from the world of elite consulting, fam, elite. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm working out of London. Um, and of course, that's hyperstructure, hyper competency culture, hyper accountability culture. These are all things, depending on which side you, you fall on these things, they're either great things that are the engines of amazing business and growth or problematic if you're trying to you know, be the architect of innovation and actually get the best out of people to get good ideas to become real things. So I imagine you're coming from that world, knowing you personally, I know you're a very structured thinker, you, you know, you, you're really great at grappling with complex ideas. And then you're immersed in this world of sticky notes and everyone's got an opinion and everybody's figuring stuff out and you're meeting Victor and you're meeting Taras and you could like, there's a community guy called Andile. Like, what did you think? I mean, it was a shock to the system, right? Because, <laughs> and I was lucky that the consultancy I worked at was a relatively young company. So there were some parallels and we were building the business. There was a very much an ownership mentality. And so I wasn't coming from a place where I was a cog in the machine. But we had s attracted people who were fairly similar to each other in the way that they thought and approached their day-to-day. -day. And so coming into this incredibly diverse environment. And that was one of the reasons I joined Founders Factory is the team and the portfolio were both so diverse in the problems they were solving, the countries they were based in, the backgrounds that they came from. I mean, I actually knew Taris from when he was working at a startup out of the Barclays Rise offices when wow. they were still around in Woodstock. Wow. It was confronting in a good way to see the different ways that you could go about solving a problem. And even if it seemed like a less structured, to my mind, perhaps more inefficient process to see that the ways that that kind of creativity, inclusivity, collaboration could generate better ideas and solutions and new ways of approaching problems that I hadn't been privy to before. It's interesting to me that you've spent just over a year in this environment come in never having had direct entrepreneurial experience, 
you know, we'll talk about Taris in a moment where he went on to be part of a fairly successful high traction team in, in blockchain and in, in a company like Luno. You take away from this experience or maybe derive from it the drive to become a founder yourself. Talk me through how you come to a conclusion that maybe I need to become one of the people I've been supporting for just over a year. Sure. And I think, you know, structure and de-risking is a useful skill in a startup, right? So there's room for us. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'd always known I'd wanted to build a business. It was just a matter of when. I know I thrive most when I've got real skin in the game and real autonomy to drive tangible value and outcomes. And of course, at Founders Factory Africa, I was working very closely with 30 incredible founders across the continent, getting to see what they were struggling with, what it takes to build a successful business. And the more and more I worked with them, the more and more both inspired, but also dissatisfied I felt because I was always one step removed from where the action was actually happening. I couldn't implement, I couldn't get on the ground with them and help them really untangle some of the challenges that they were facing. And I knew more and more that I needed to be in the trenches, really building something from the ground up, being able to shape a vision, a culture, take on a really complex problem. And as you say, take that chaos and structure it into a venture Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And so that's why when Revio approached me, it felt like the right opportunity at the right time. Shout out to Revio. We saw you creeping and crawling all over our LinkedIn. We saw you coming, fam. (laughs) Uh, We saw you coming. No, it's fantastic. And uh, Chief Operations Officer? Yeah. Mercy. (laughs) You've got your hands full. So, Victor... In what ways did the institutional players you worked for? So, you know, I'll ask you to list them so that we kind of have a sense of the sort of stuff you got into before you threw yourself at being an entrepreneur. What did you learn from that world that you are finding valuable now? Because, again, I think there's an oversimplification that we see in the media a lot, which is, oh, you know, big business doesn't get it. You know, startups will save the world. They'll disrupt these big players, etc. And at at Founders Factory Africa, we've definitely come to uh, you know appreciate that there is a massive and perhaps even fundamental role that big corporate can play in basically ensuring that startup innovation is not just supported, but it's actually mainstreamed. So what did you learn from, from your time in institutional corporate life that you're finding really useful now? At Microsoft, learned so much from a global perspective. So I was fortunate to be managing five out of eight investments that they were making into South African companies. We had a mandate to grow these startups into global companies. All right. And my role was to take five out of eight of them um, into global and saw some amazing growth uh, in a number of them. So I'll come back to that uh, amazing growth. But Some of the key things that we saw were the systems, processes, and structures that we learned in corporate. Um, They're quite amazing. Um, And I always say to people who want to leave corporate after a few months, after they start in corporate, that stick in, learn as much as you can, because those learnings, you will need them, uh, particularly you know, maybe might not need them at startup phase, but as you start thinking scale, growth, all those management tools, all the consulting thinking to Nicole's point, it really, really helps. So quite a lot of the systems, processes, and structures and networks as well that I got from, from corporate were very useful. And then from the startups I was working with, you know, I saw some of them phenomenally grow. Then I started thinking, look, if I put in one rand in each of these companies, where could I have been, you know, five years later? So that's when I went to uh, explore the world of investments, um, work for some amazing co-founders, you know, the ex-CEO and founder, as well as the ex-CFO of Braid, kickstarted Value Capital Partners. Um, so I was lucky as well as their first employee, basically, wow. as they were building their multi-billion fund um, and learned so much around strategic thinking, and the levels at which we're dealing at were just so phenomenal. This um, was VC, right? Yes, yes. So it was more investment management. So we were buying listed companies, stock in listed companies, and um, more of an engaged shareholder type of model. So learned a lot uh, through that. And as I was also analyzing some of these companies, I kept seeing 
you know, the logistics spend on a lot of the listed companies. And that's where I actually learned a lot about uh, logistics, that the industry is highly fragmented. It's so opaque. It's inefficient. It's unreliable. Because um, as you're looking at these listed company stocks, you can see some of those inefficiencies that, you know, trickle down to the financial statements. The one thing though I wish I had done is before venturing into the entrepreneurship space is pay my house off. That's a reality, right? Because um, right from the get-go, if you get into entrepreneurship without owing anyone anything, you can sleep better at night because things typically don't happen as quickly as you wish they would. Um, you know, they might happen two, three years later, you know. So that's one thing I wish I had done is, you know, just stayed a little bit longer and just focused on starting yeah. my entrepreneurial journey and a very absolute clean slate. You know, it, it, it just gives you better peace of mind and you can build the business, not in sustenance thinking, but in more visionary thinking. I love that piece of advice. It's so practical and so real. I mean, if if people who are inclined to be entrepreneur listening to this podcast right now, who are sitting in corporate, saw that corporate experience and the and the sort of guaranteed revenue potential situation they're in as the setup, the perfect setup for their entrepreneurial launch, they'd probably approach it differently. They'd probably holiday differently. They'd probably spend differently. Their priorities in the now would probably change uh, and maybe not mirror some of the expectations and pressures that are put on corporate professionals to look successful and be successful and be part of living out that dream um, in the moment at the expense of the future. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Look, the sad reality is working for yourself is not cool, right? Because, look, it's it's the most amazing thing you do, um, but at the end of it, you know, that pressure that you have on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, especially if you start employing people, you know, people's families now depend on your existence, right? So it's not cool in that sense. It definitely looks cool from the outside. But I, I think you're talking about as a lived-in experience, yeah? Correct, correct, yeah. correct. You know, so there is a reality to entrepreneurship that many of us don't know about before we jump into it. Um, and sometimes, sadly, corporate creates this, you know, virtual cushion that's not there when you're actually running your own um, startup. So it's not cool in the sense of the process. It's not It's not comfortable at all. Uh, and many people want to work for themselves, do their own stuff. But I would look at it differently. So you were nodding the whole time while, you know, <laughs> and, uh, amening in, 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 quietly there, Taris, as, as, as Victor was sharing there. I wonder what goes into, you know, now thinking about your decision to leave Founders Factory Africa for a form of entrepreneurship which is, I suppose, intrapreneurship because it's at a startup, but it's a fairly well-known success in the making. Um, this is Luno. So I wonder how much of what Victor's just shared you factored into your decision-making around, I want to be this entrepreneurial dude, a version of myself, but I'm not quite ready or interested really maybe in the level of discomfort Victor sounds like he's a part of day-to-day. -day. I was nodding a lot because it like very, very heavily factored into my decision to move into a Luno. I, I do see myself, and I've, one of the reasons why I joined Founders Factory in the beginning was because I really wanted to become a founder myself. I didn't have an idea that I wanted to do, and, and, and still don't really have an idea that I'm like, oh, I'm going to go and build that. But I knew that there was something that uh, I wanted to work towards. And I will say, working at Founders Factory, there was a lot of opportunity, uh, a lot of a lot of occasions where I saw the pressure that the founders were under uh, and the strain and uh, the difficult positions. And I think like it does always look really cool and sexy on the outside and it never, it never is. Uh, and even for the more successful startups, it's still uh, incredibly difficult. And you, when you get to see kind of behind the curtain, the strain that people are going through, it did actually make me reflect and say, like, do I actually want to, go down that path that I want to put my life into that position. Is this your experience at Founders Factory Africa yeah. or Luna or both? No, my experience at Founders Factory Africa. But as I went through that and kept going, I realized also, again, seeing the founders, what they went through, that it is something that uh, 
I could see myself enduring to get to a point where I've been able to build or create something like, like Victor and the other founders have. So part of one of the reasons why I did want to move out of FFA, I had, I learned so much there, but you're really sitting there, you're learning a lot about 40 different startups and have one call in the morning about uh, AI rapid diagnostics. And then the next is about an insure tech product in, in Kenya or whatever it may be. I wanted to really be able to find an opportunity, one to dig a bit deeper and really focus and then look for a really big problem to solve. And that's kind of what crypto and, and Luna really was appealing to me was it was this big challenge. And I figured if I could help solve that, then I would be better equipped. The other piece is very exactly what Victor said. Like I wanted to have an opportunity to build my foundation financially, emotionally, all of those things. So when I am in a position where I'm ready to kind of execute and join Nicole and Victor in the startup game, that uh, I am in a better position where I don't have a lot of the stress and pressures that some people may not have been privy to, to know would be coming to their way. Yeah. You know what failure tastes like. You have the benefit of hindsight looking back on a startup that didn't succeed that you, you used to be a part of. And I wonder, reflecting on your time at Farmers Factory Africa and now in perhaps arguably a more better positioned startup to succeed long term in Luno, do you reflect on anything that you, you think you now know that would have made a difference if you would be able to sort of teleport yourself back in time and and sort of pour into that business? Yeah, definitely. I think yeah. working, at, working at Luno is like a, a, everything moves really rapidly. You learn a lot. There are a lot of you see a lot of problems, see a lot of things go wrong, you see a lot of things go right. So I've learned so much that I do think of the teleport back there could have uh, a huge impact. And I think that is unfortunately just as, as part of the game that when you're building these companies and you work with startups, you don't know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. And that can be really eye-opening to kind of accept the fact that like there's so much out there that you you will you cannot even conceptualize the fact that you don't know that this this is a problem um and you just really do have to kind of get down and, and keep going i think looking back there's a lot of lessons that i would have would have been really helpful and, can you think of one that you think ah if i could just go back and tell them that <laughs> yeah i i think fundraising investors um that's a huge kind of part of what being a startup is uh, and a complicated part of that. And I think that going back, there were definitely ways that those things, can, those types of things can be managed. And uh, the partnerships, the relationship building. Yeah. And, 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 and just ensuring that I think when you're picking an investor, and I do think it's really important to like phrase that way, because as a startup, I think a lot of people feel that they may not have choices. They have to take whatever money is on the table. And you, you really have to stick that out because the wrong type of investor can cause a lot of problems. I'm thinking the other piece is keeping things simple. Like I mentioned it earlier, it's a really, for me, a common trend that I've seen in startups that have uh, had challenges and, and maybe haven't made it has been an unnecessary push to add complexity to uh, their products and their processes. Uh, and I think now working at Luna, like that's something that we do really well is our, our product is, is really, really simple. And I, some people may dislike its simplicity but it's so much strength in that. And that, that kind of clear focus is a huge advantage and, and just trying to get one thing right and not maybe 10 all at once. Gotcha. And so congratulations on, I suppose, one step away from <laughs> failure <laughs> or potential failure. I, I suppose this idea of fail-proof and, and maybe even the way I'm framing failure unintentionally is, is, is creating a, a stigma around it because there is no true progress without failing at stuff and, and growing from that and learning from that. So I, I don't want to sort of, you know, unwittingly end up making it sound like here you are succeeding with failure behind you. Um, but it is fair to say there's a vote for the ongoing success of Triplo that's represented by, you know, this incredible investment landed by a shareholder we now share, <laughs> Standard Bank, of course, a shareholder and investment partner in Founders Factory Africa, now also a shareholder and investment partner, clearly commercial investment partner and in fact, commercial business partner to, to Triplo. Congratulations on, on, on roping them into that pre-seed. I wonder what sort of things about failure landing that sort of validation, investor validation, 
brings into sharp focus for you personally now that you've landed some comfort room to sort of think and and almost dream and strategically move forward um and and how does failures or near failures of the past sort of factor into that whole realm of thinking for you yeah so there are three things that are really i'm really now starting to think about and obviously there are more things but the one thing is building a sustainable business um you know i don't want to be caught up in the raising cycle you know i want to build a business which actually doesn't need money right doesn't need external investment the business model is self-sustaining to the point where you know the money i want to raise is to scale into 20 50 100 other geographies and replicate the same model that's quite so, traditional thinking right like fundamentals based thinking in, in terms of investments correct mindset correct there's nothing wrong with that it's just saying it it's quite interesting that that's where you land well, that's what starts to come into focus for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what I've seen is, I mean, competing platforms and uh, a whole range of startups globally, you know, we're trying to build our business out of thin air, right? Um, there are great salespeople out there, but the best milestone for me is building a business which has amazing customers and the business can scale quite drastically without really having too much reliance on venture capital money, which is a lot of our startups at the end of the day. So that's the first thing really about building a sustainable uh, business. And then we can even raise much higher check sizes in the near future. So I'll give you a very good example. In the next month or two, we'll be doing exactly the same volumes as some of our competitors who've raised 60 times what we raised, you know, 40, 60 times what we raised. And that's the story I want to tell and show the world that logistics software companies or startups can be very good businesses because um, right now there's a bit of a negative sentiment around it. So that's the first thing. Secondly is the team, you know. So at the beginning, I used to hire cheap to stretch my runway, but still needed to come back and do the job myself. All right, so quite a fundamental thing I've learned is um, really getting the right team in place. Initially, I thought I was going to be the only founder. Pay and, off the house. <laughs> correct. And then now, you know, I actually uh, brought in two co-founders um, a bit later into the journey. And I'm very happy with that because my capabilities stop at a certain level and these guys can pick it up from there. And to be fair, I mean, the phone's just been ringing. We're just re grateful to have you in this room no. right now because <laughs> the phone keeps ringing. They're in meetings you're supposed to be in right now and that wouldn't be possible if this was just you. Correct, absolutely. So we can start scaling uh, myself, scaling the leadership team. The third thing um, that we're really, really very excited about is that our product is actually used by customers, you know. So we've got customers on both sides of a marketplace utilizing the platform where you actually can't transact through our platform without using our product, um, which is quite exciting because you're finding a lot of logistics companies with technology, whereas we are a technology company in logistics, which is resulting in a product-first approach and you know, the amount of blue chips that have been really, really giving us opportunities has been quite fascinating because of the sheer product. You know, we're nowhere near the size of many companies, but our product speaks for itself from that perspective. Yeah, which is interesting because um, when you were in the logistics business, where you would have been thinking about your logistics, literally like the loads you're sending, trying to grow your customer base. Correct. Who can I truck for? Yeah. You would have needed to go through quite some iterative thinking Correct. to come away from that to think about a product and, and lead with that and Taris, you know and we're winding down now partnerships have been key i mean really interesting to hear in, in a way that i hadn't heard before there's a sense in which that partnerships regime that relationship building muscle started being built long before triplo was an idea um victor was working on and and i wonder what you've observed in in having a partnerships role at Founders Factory Africa, knowing how powerful and game-changing partnerships have been for many portfolio companies we have, in e helping them evolve their models, test product, you know, access market, you know, make money. Yeah, what is your thinking around partnerships within the context of, you know, being essentially a biz dev dude at, at Luno? 
Yeah, I think everyone knows that like partnerships are super critical to building your startup to, to driving company success. Um, they, I think there's a lot of times there can be like a misconception about what what is the right partnership. Uh, and I think Victor's done, and a lot of the founders at Founders Factory Africa have done a really good job of being aware that you don't need to be constantly going for partnerships that are about building revenue. You can look for those product ones. You can look for the testing ones. It's really about finding the partnership that matches where you are. The fact of the matter is if you have a very kind of MVP product and you've been operating for three months, no blue chip company is going to pay you any money for it. Like they're just, they aren't, they aren't geared, particularly in Africa, big corporates are not geared to work with small startups which is really unfortunate, but you need to be really conscious of kind of where you are and what you need to get to the next stage. You could be sitting there going, cool, I really want a revenue startup. But in fact, actually maybe getting a pilot, no one pays anything, just validate your products, get some traction. That will probably have a better impact on helping you raise your next round. I think it's really important. I think a lot of people do miss that. And also that these things take a lot of work and, and you have to be very intentional about where you're you're going to. And it will take long. It will take months. I think sitting at my position now at Luno, my role isn't really to go, now. Nah, I need to sell like Bitcoin to corporates or something like that necessarily. But it is looking, we're, we're on a mission to kind of get crypto into everyone's hands. And it's like, cool, who are the right people to help us get there? And what are the, what are the challenges? What are the advantages, the opportunities that they can bring and that we can give them uh, to help us grow? <laughs> you just played so beautifully into me selling this wonderful point to founders. One of the key partnerships you might need to engage is a partnership with Founders Factory Africa. <laughs> and if you're a corporate looking to figure out how to to sort of emulate the success of a Triplow, partnering with Standard Bank and Founders Factory Africa, enabling that success, hey, maybe you need to be talking to us. And see. I, will, I will say, even with all my bias, I think a lot of corporates tend to think that because they're big enough teams that they know how to do everything and they know how to do it better. I don't think there's a single corporate that is a better product than Triplo. Wow. And I do think, and that goes for a lot of the startups. I think if, if you're a corporate and you're interested in working with startups and tech companies, don't try and go out it on your own at first. Like just engage people in the ecosystem, engage VCs, engage other founders, engage venture development companies like Founders Factory Africa. And people will be more than happy to put you in the right place introduce to the right people and won't they won't be complicated they won't be cost involved like the african tech ecosystem i think is like very collaborative and i don't think corporates take advantage of that enough so nicole what would you say has been the most useful thing you've taken away from being essentially an ecosystem enabler to founders and and maybe i'm also asking a more cheeky question which is what have you found truly useful from the rhetoric and the hands-on support we provide now that you're on the other side of things, what do you truly value and what do you see as most valuable as a takeaway from that experience? For me, it's really the experimentation mindset. So when you reach a juncture or a decision to be made, I think from a traditional background, you would seek to do a lot of market research, a lot of analysis, and you can often get caught kind of endlessly in that space, especially in a new space where there's not a lot of data available and in Africa, that's the reality for even some of the more established industries. So saying, let's put down a couple of hypotheses, let's use low code or no code tools, manual processes, as Tara said earlier, and just test what works, gather our own data, speak to customers, and then grow from there. That's been transformational for me. Just start somewhere and build from there, even if it's not the right place to start, because at least you'll get momentum going. So Founders Factory Africa doesn't invest past the seed stage. Is Revio past the seed stage? We're closing out our seed round at the moment. From that perspective, I mean, what would you say is specific to that stage you're in as a founder that Founders Factory Africa is really great at helping address or helping founders figure out? And maybe what are some of the things you think we still need to figure out how to be better at helping founders in that position at that stage of their business? For me, Founders Factory Africa provides kind of two parallel streams of value. There is immense expertise in the organization across all the key areas it takes to build a startup, your product, your technology, your growth, and then your market access as well, access to investors, access to partners, and thinking about what you need when. At the same time, it's also useful to have a partner who works with 
dozens of other startups at the same stage. So you can sense check what's normal because as a founder and a CEO, I think it's very natural to feel like everything's a disaster. I must be doing something wrong. Mistakes keep happening or we're getting negative client feedback. Should I just give up now? And having the perspective of someone to say, that's normal. Everyone feels like this. Things go wrong and you've really just got to fix it, build back better, find out why it's not working and move forward is really reassuring just for the weight uh, of responsibility and risk you take on as a founder. And so that perspective is really, really valuable for someone who's now sitting in, in my position and needs a bit of reassurance. Something I think we could be doing better is there's a lot of operational complexity in a startup, right? And all of the reference points someone like I have is from a company that's been around for a long time. And so setting up fundamental capabilities like customer support, how do I do that? Who's the first person I hire? When there's a customer complaint, who picks up the phone? It can't always be a founder, uh, especially as you start to onboard more clients. And so providing the less sexy side of support to building startups, which is just deep operations. And I'm obviously a bit biased because that's my role as the COOs set up operations. But, you know, looking at the Founders Factory Africa structure at the moment, I'm not sure who I would go to for deep expertise in those areas. And so that's something to think about to round out the offering. Great segue into another question I had in mind, which was, you know, what are you finding hardest about the transition from being a corporate animal to being a founder. Uh, you're touching on it now, but I think there's also something you said earlier, which I don't know if I'm hearing this correctly, but I think it's something we all struggle with, which is some kind of imposter syndrome. Is there something you really feel like, I wish I knew how to do this well, then that would make me a better founder? Have you, have you hit a, a brick wall just yet? I know you're still fresh to the role and everything, but have you had those moments? Yes, I think so. I think, you know, you kind of, get to a certain point in your life and you look around going, where's the adult in the room? And then you realize you're the adult and it's a terrifying and liberating moment. And I think that happens so often when you're part of a founding team or an early stage team, because you can't possibly be an expert in all the things you need to do. And you need to just figure it out or find people you can soundboard ideas with, advisors and coaches you can bring in. And then as you bring in, hopefully the fundraising resources, hire the right people that you then need to manage knowing nothing about their area of expertise. And for me, that is my biggest area of growth, I would say, is getting comfortable overseeing areas in which I know, frankly, very little and not having the time to go and become an expert in that thing as you would in a kind of consulting setup. My journey has been consulting, know the answers, get the right answers, investing, know what the right questions are to ask. Right. And now in startup is just go and find out like one of the two, you know, <laughs> someone's going to fire some good questions at you. You're not going to have the answers, but you've got to be able to think on your feet to say, this is how I'll go about finding that out. Okay, so listen, we're going to shut this down by basically me asking you to, and you've, you've done it already, you've peppered it through the episode, but this is a secret source podcast. Give us your top secret that you'd like to open source. I think there is a tendency in African startups to chase big transactions at a very early stage. So big fundraising and big enterprise deals. And while that is attractive because we're in a low trust environment and those things can provide a degree of credibility. At the earliest stages, it's actually not that helpful. Uh, it can be a distraction. It can waste a lot of effort and time and ultimately not pay off. And what you're better off doing at the earliest stages is finding customers that are going to activate quickly they're going to be willing to test your product, even though it's at a scrappy stage, and they're going to provide you with very good feedback. And those customers might not be your forever customers. They might not be your biggest accounts, but they're your most important first customers. And they're often startups in the community. And so what I'm really appreciating about forums like this is it's connecting different yeah. startups who can hopefully 
test on each other and learn from each other uh, to build better products that people really want. That's a great one, Nicole. So coming over to you, Victor. I think one very important thing is just get it going, right? I speak to a lot of people who are in the journey of starting uh, their own startups, stuck in analysis paralysis, um, you know, so what if there is another product that looks like yours? Do they have 100% of the market? Maybe not. Right. So I think um, let's just, you know, jump into it and let's fail fast and let's execute. <laughs> Fantastic. Taris? I have more conversations. Victor's touched on it even at this point now. Nicole touched on it as well. Uh, you can't build a startup by yourself. You can't help even if you're an employee at a startup and you really want to contribute more. You can't just do it by yourself. Uh, I think there's the kind of two points that I want to like touch with the conversations. One, I think founders isolate themselves unnecessarily. Uh, I don't. Not everyone is trying to steal your idea, uh, and not everyone cares that you aren't as polished or as successful as as you may appear on the outside. I've had a lot of conversations with founders and set conversations up where they are so grateful to hear that somebody else is actually having a tough time and is figuring it out. And I think those just from a mental standpoint are incredibly helpful. Uh, but also most of the deals that I've seen get done aren't resulting from cold leads or, or doing lots of research or being some very highly connected person, but it's just somebody else outside of your kind of circle, your environment that may be aware of a challenge or an opportunity or what you're doing that, that makes that introduction and, and creates that opportunity for you to grow. Well, I just want to thank the three of you for being such incredible um, opening guest for this podcast. It, you just struck um, the perfect tone for what we hope this podcast will continue to do um, in, in, in future installments. We'll, of course, have a revolving door of hosts, um, uh, colleagues of mine from Founders Factory Africa, who are you know area experts and hands-on specialists at a myriad of disciplines that are key to the venture building investments and acceleration trifecta that founders factory africa is becoming uh, increasingly well known for so we look forward to curating more conversations like these uh, and you guys have just set it off so beautifully so thanking first nicole dunn of course uh, previously venture scale lead at Founders Factory Africa, now COO at the fintech startup Revio. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks, Andila. It was great to chat to you. And of course, Taris Arnold, former partnerships manager at Founders Factory Africa, now business development lead at the crypto giant in the making, Luno. Thanks for having me, Andila. Absolutely. And then, of course, Victor Chaitejri, former cricket pro turn corporate animal. <laughs> and now uh, entrepreneur and uh, CEO of the logistics tech company Triplo. No, thanks for having me on the session. This uh, would not have been possible without Founders Factory. So appreciate that you guys are doing this. Fantastic. And of course, thank you all for listening. Look out for the next one, fam. Cheers.